have quite a chunk of Scripture before us today. I don't remember the last time we had this much Scripture uh, in just in one Sunday, um, but this is, this is uh, quite an enormous one. Let me just encourage you, however, at the outset of this, although you're thinking like, oh man, that's, that's so, so many details, right, that we just read. Let me just encourage you that in many ways, I think this passage is perhaps a bit more straightforward and simple uh, than some of the other, other sacrifices that we have seen so far. I have made, if you look uh, in the notes section of the order of service, I've made an outline of the chapter because it's so large. Um, we, we will use this a little bit later. Um, oh, it's, yeah, it's on the notes section. There we go. Um, don't, don't, like, go through it now reading it because we'll, we'll get into it later. Um, but that will hopefully kind of chop it up into bite-sized pieces um, but I do think in many ways this passage uh, will be a lot simpler. For example, with the grain offering and the peace offering, we had to do a lot of investigative work. There was a lot of etymologies and stuff like that. With the sin offering, I have good news for you. This word in Hebrew, it means a sin offering, okay? Whew, easy. Um, the word is chatat. Chata uh, means to sin generally in Hebrew, and so a chatat is accordingly a sin offering. Kind of very simple and easy. That being said, I do want us to consider, consider briefly for a moment the largeness of the passage and consider why that might be. It is by far the longest of all the instructions for all the various offerings. If we were simply to count the verses for each offering, um, this one is enormous. The burnt offering is dealt with in 17 verses. The grain offering in 16. The peace offering, 17. Next week, we'll see the guilt offering. It's the shortest of all. Um, that's partly because there's, there's a good deal of overlap between the guilt offering and the sin offering. They are different in various ways, as we'll see today. But the guilt offering is dealt with in 13 verses. It's the shortest of all. The sin offering takes up 48 verses, almost just barely shy of the same distance of all three sacrifices before this, and I can't help but think that that is significant. Typically, in Scripture, well, God never wastes time in Scripture, but typically, if something is given to you in great detail, if it is a really large passage, God or he repeats it several times, it is important. It's, it's God trying to, to teach you something. He doesn't mince words. Every, every word, every amount of detail has its purpose. And I can't help but think um, that, that the length of the instructions for the sin offering is trying to teach us something. I, I think the sin, the sin offering is probably the most significant of all the offerings. It wasn't the most frequent. We've seen that that distinction goes to burnt offerings and grain offerings. They were offered twice daily. It does seem to me, however, to be perhaps the most important, even more perhaps than the guilt offering. Interestingly, while there is a lot of overlap between the guilt offering and the sin offering, they don't quite have the same meaning, but they do share a lot of similarities Nevertheless, guilt offerings really aren't mentioned all that much outside of the instructions we have here. 
In the rest of the Old Testament, there's not a whole lot of mention of guilt offerings being given. Sin offerings, however, are mentioned quite a lot, by, by far way more than guilt offerings. Furthermore, on the Day of Atonement, not only are the majority of sacrifices sin offerings, but it is the blood of the sin offering that goes into the holiest of holies. It's not the blood of a burnt offering. It's not the blood of a guilt offering. It is the blood of a sin offering that the high priest takes and sprinkles on the Ark of the Covenant. That, that's very significant, brothers and sisters. On the most holy day of Israel's calendar year, in the holiest place you could go to on the holiest day, it's the blood of the sin offering that goes to make atonement. And I think God is trying to teach us something about that. Well, let's go ahead and dive into our text then. Uh, I think the big picture, if I could sum this up for you today, is that sin is uncleanness. Sin is pollution. Sin is gross. Sin stinks. And I'm not trying to say that in a funny way. Sin should make us wretch. It's so gross. And yet the sin offering provides a cleansing from that. And Christ, as our true sin offering by his blood, purges away our defilement. We'll consider various points of application on the way. Big picture, sin is uncleanness, and the sin offering takes away this uncleanness. How do we see this? I'd say we see it in four ways, four ways throughout this whole passage. First of all, we see it simply in the word for sin itself or sin offering itself. Typically, the word chata means to sin, and chatat means a sin offering. Curiously, though, in a certain form of the word, chata can mean to cleanse or to purge. It's like, well, does it mean to sin or to cleanse? Well, it depends on the form it takes. For example, Psalm 51.7, which we sang for our opening psalm, purge me, the chateni, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Leviticus 8, 14 through 15, when Moses is consecrating Aaron and his sons, we're told, then Moses brought the bull of the sin offering and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar. He purified the altar and poured out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Now, if you're wondering how can the word mean to sin and mean to cleanse at the same time, it's almost like it's like meaning to defile and to clean from defilement at the same time. Um, most likely, I think, this is the connection here is what we call in English or like in grammar or whatever, a metonymy of effect. Metonymy of effect. It's when you refer to something as the effect that it has on something else, okay? We do this all the time in various kinds of language. Um, it's kind of like a, like a metaphorical way of speak, uh, speaking, for example. For example, I, I found a funny example. This made me laugh. Uh, it was uh, an inscription found somewhere in the Roman emperor about a gladiator named Keladus. Keladus. And the inscription says, Keladus, the sigh 
of all the girls. The sigh of all the girls. He is the sigh of all the girls. He walks by, you know, just in all of his armor, and the girls, they just swoon at this gladiator. Now, is he actually the sigh of the girls? Well, no. He causes them all to sigh. Sighing is the effect that he has upon them. So therefore, he is referred to as the sigh of all the girls. That's metonymy of effect. And in a similar way, the sin offering affects a cleansing. So the verb hata can mean to uh, affect a cleansing from pollution in a certain sense. And, and so even there, though, the thing to see is there's, there's a connection between cleansing Cleansing and sin itself is uncleanness that we see even in the word itself. Second, we see that the sin offering is a cleansing um, from the kinds of sins that are mentioned. Many of them have to do with uncleanness, if you noticed. Now, as far as generally what kind of sins the sin offering deals with, it seems that a great deal of them have to do with sinning ignorantly or unintentionally. For example, verse 2 says, if anyone sins unintentionally, or later on in the list of sins in chapter 5, the phrase that is repeated is, and it is hidden from him, meaning they, they don't see it, right? Maybe something was unclean. You, you touched an animal, something had been unclean, somebody didn't tell you it was unclean, you didn't know, um, but now you're unclean, and you didn't purify yourself as you should have. That's, that's unintentional, okay? Now, not all the sins, however, are purely unintentional. For example, verse 1 of chapter 5 says, if anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration or a call to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Well, there the call goes out, the, the Israelites saw something, maybe they saw a crime happen or something. They hear the call and they freeze up out of fear perhaps and they don't say anything. That's not an un, unintentional sin. They have knowledge. They, they heard things, they know what it was about, and yet they didn't do it, right? You know, sometimes we say, um, we say with our sins, I think, I know I used to do this, I think especially as a young believer, but I, I think maybe kids do this all the time, but Parents can do it too. We'll say, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean to say that. I know I said, like, you're really stupid, but I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. I know I, I, know I hit you. I didn't, I didn't mean to hit you. Well, you didn't plan that beforehand, right? It wasn't on your list of things to do today to, to be really mean or rude to someone, but you did do it intentionally. <laughs> that did come from your heart, right? Um, Older theologians uh, talk about concupiscence, concupiscence. Our confession refers to the idea without using the word. Concupiscence refers to the first motions of sin, that angry thought that pops out of your heart, that lustful thought that just kind of pops into your mind. Those things, those are the first motions of sin. Those are concupiscence and Though Rome says it's not sin, we affirm, no, that is sin, right? Now, we even say those are voluntary sins. We don't call concupiscence involuntary. It's voluntary. Why? 
Well, they come from your will. What is the word for will in Latin? Voluntas. Yeah, you didn't plan it beforehand. You didn't plan to lust when you saw someone. You didn't plan to lash out in your heart in anger when your child did this. And yet, where did it come from? Sinful passions in your soul. It's voluntary. These sins here, for the sin offering, it also covers those kinds of sins as well. We see this also in verses 4 through 5. It says, Or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear and it is hidden from him. Now there the phrase, it is hidden from him, again cannot mean pure ignorance. It's more along the lines when you're caught up in anger, you're caught up in passions, perhaps you've said something very biting, and in the moment you thought you were justified in your sin, and then later you were convicted and you go, that was very sinful, right? Nevertheless, it's for sins that aren't planned beforehand. We'll see with guilt offerings, there's much more thought that goes ahead into guilt offerings. These, however, are unplanned for the most part, but not involuntary. John Owen says of the sin offering, he says, any sin where men fall by error, ignorance, imprudence, thoughtlessness, temptation, violence of passions and the like, for such was this sacrifice instituted. Now, the big thing to note here, however, is that many of the sins mentioned, as I said, are related to uncleanness. Interestingly, we'll see next week part of the difference be- <clears throat> oh, it's happening. <clears throat> part of the difference between the sin offering and the guilt offering, the sin offering is more related to clean and unclean, right? The guilt offering is more related to the category of holiness in a lot of ways. For example, Leviticus 5.15 of the guilt offering, if anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, it's more connected to holiness. Sin offering is more connected to clean and unclean. But we see clearly a lot of the things mentioned. If you touch something unclean and you didn't go through the Normally, you just had to bathe. You had to wash, and you'd be clean until evening. If you didn't do that, right, for whatever reason, you had to offer a sin offering. The reason for this is because you, um, if, when you sinned in a matter of uncleanness, you have defiled God's temple. You have defiled the tabernacle. All defilement, all uncleanness needed to be cleansed and all the general kinds of uncleanness were all cleansed on the Day of Atonement, but you didn't need to offer a sin offering for every kind of uncleanness. You just typically had to bathe. If you forgot, however, you did defile the tabernacle of the Lord. For example, Numbers 19.13 says, "'Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died,' and does not cleanse himself. There was a way you could do it, and I don't think you needed a sacrifice. You just had to wash and wait several days. And does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. So if you did not take the normal steps to clean yourself, You were unclean. Your uncleanness stuck on you. And if you did it really with a lot of thoughtlessness, as it was here, you were cut off from Israel. 
That's why it's a very serious thing. Although I've said uncleanness is not inherently sinful, it's not something you messed around with. It's not something you treated nonchalantly. You wanted to get clean as soon as possible because if you didn't, you could be cut off from Israel. We see this also in the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, 15 through 16. Then the high priest shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. So again, sin and uncleanness are all connected. Uncleanness is a picture of sin. It's interesting, the list of sins that are mentioned at the beginning of chapter 5, the first one and the last one are not ceremonial. They're just what we would just say morally sinful. Those things are always even sinful today to make a rash oath or, or to not testify when you know you're called to do so. That's sinful today. Those are sandwiched around ceremonial kinds of uncleanness, and I think it's intentional. I think God is trying to say uncleanness, even ceremonial, that's a picture of sin. The sin offering, as it cleanses you, it cleanses you from moral defilement more than anything As a first bit of application, let me just ask you, do you see, do you understand your sin is uncleanness, Christian or non-Christian? Does your sin have a stench in your nose? Does it disgust you? Is there something about it that that is, is comparable to other things that are unclean, that, that are gross, that you're like, oh, they, they make you wretch. I, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do it. We all laugh at my father because just anyone making the noise of retching, he's like, stop, he has to leave the room, right? We all make fun of him. Sin should have some kind of effect like that on us. It's uncleanness. It's pollution, When we examine the kinds of things that uncleanness is associated with, they're gross. Many of them are natural. They're not inherently sinful, but they are gross. Bodily discharges, skin infections, dead animals, animals that wallow in their feces, even feces itself. All of this is God's way of saying, that's how sin is before my holiness. It's gross. It's revolting. Do you view your sin that way? Or have you made peace with it? Do you not smell any of the stink of your sin? Benjamin Keach says, Some uncleanness is so loathsome that it causes such things to stink as come near it. Sin makes the sinner stink. Is that how you view your sin? Or have you become so used to it you don't even notice the smell anymore? I would say one of the signs that perhaps you've stagnated in your sanctification is when you no longer smell the stench of your sin. It doesn't bother you anymore. You've kind of made peace with it. 
Christ has taken away our sins, brothers and sisters. And we'll see all kinds of ways in which we should affirm that, right? He has taken it away from us. Our sins are not counted to us. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And yet, that is not contrary in any way from saying, your sin should stink. Should you have gospel joy? Yeah. Should you have full assurance of the Father's love for you, which was purchased by Christ? Absolutely. But uncleanness is still uncleanness. Pollution is still pollution, and it should stink. In fact, I would say the greater sight you have of God's love for you, the greater view you have by faith of the cross should make sin stink even more. The more you grow closer to Christ and his holiness, his beauty, his cleanness and purity should make sin stink even more in your life. If it doesn't, cry out to the Lord, God, my heart has become numb to my own sin. I don't smell the offensive nature of it and repent. This brings us to the third way that the sin offering is for purification, namely in the various kinds of people or groups uh, that the sin offering can be for. We see this in verses 3 through 35. Now, the reasons for the different types of sacrifices for different people and groups is because they are degrees of sinfulness and pollution. And therefore, they need degrees of cleansing, greater cleansing or lesser cleansing. That's different from what we've seen before. Typically, when we've seen degrees of sacrifices, the the category there there is value in terms of um, wealthier Israelites and poorer Israelites. Typically, the phrase is, if he cannot afford. That's not the distinction we see here. In fact, it's very interesting. It's not till the very end of the passage in a separate section after the list of sins that it gives us the sacrifices for the poor that they're mentioned. And I think the purpose is so we don't, we, we distinguish between the two. They are degrees, they're gradations of sacrifices, but with different purposes. The other ones are for poorer people. These are degrees of pollution and sin. We see this in several ways. We see it in the difference of the parties who offer sacrifice, the kinds of animals that are sacrificed, and what is done with the blood. It's all kind of in descending order from greater to lesser. First, there is the priest himself, either the high priest or some other anointed priest. His sin is greater because it has a greater effect. It says in verse 3, his sin doesn't just bring guilt upon himself, but upon all the people. Why? Because he represents them. He is the one trying to make atonement for them. If he is unclean, how can he offer atonement for them? In fact, interestingly, his sin is as great as the sin of the whole congregation because the sacrifices are the same. Namely, in both cases, it's a bull. In both cases, the blood is sprinkled seven times before the altar, and then the blood is placed on the horns of the golden altar, and the rest is poured out at the base of the bronze altar. But it's the same in case of the whole congregation or the priest himself. And I think it's getting at the representative nature, right? That's why it's just as big of a sin. Next, there's instructions for a leader in Israel, maybe an elder of a tribe, maybe even a king or a prince, someone who is somehow in leadership. 
His sin is greater because of his position of authority. The effects of his sin are farther reaching. How grievous it is, brothers and sisters, to see the effects of sin of a fallen elder or deacon, right? Oh, man. It just, it just has so much more effects. It just scatters the sheep, whereas if, if you strike a sheep, it, the, the sheep is struck. If you strike a, uh, strike a shepherd, the whole flock is struck. It has greater effects. So it is here. Furthermore, it may also have been back, uh, true back then, not today in this sense, but it was perhaps that the leader was also somewhat a representative uh, of the people underneath them and perhaps also brought guilt upon them uh, in the same way that the priest did. I mean, we see this with David. When he sins, uh, he also often brings judgment upon Israel as a whole. So maybe in that sense, um, he, he also has a greater sin. Either way, his sin, while still great, it's not as great as the sin of the priest or the whole congregation. There's less pollution. So the sacrifice is not a bull, it's a male goat. And the blood is only put on the horns of the bronze altar and the rest is poured out. Lastly, you have the common person. The blood of their sacrifice is also put on the horns of the bronze altar poured out at its base as it is for the leader, but the difference is the animal is less valuable. It could be male or female. It could be a goat or a lamb. It's a lesser sacrifice for a lesser degree of pollution. Lastly, the fourth and last way, before we move on to some application, that we see the sin offering is for purification, is we see that after the blood of the animal had been used, the fat portions are burned on the altar the rest has to be taken out of the camp and burned. Verse 11 says, But the skin of the bull and all its flesh, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull, he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place, to the ash heap, and shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap he shall be, it shall be burned. Now, presumably, some of this was true with the other sacrifices, the dung, whatever was not eaten, whatever was not burned in the sacrifice, would have probably been disposed in a similar manner outside of the camp, and yet it is only with the sin offering that this is expressly mentioned. Whatever was not eaten, the priest could eat a portion of it, whatever was not burned on the altar had to be burned. It's not like the burnt offering... Um, was it the burnt offering? They could, yeah, they could keep the skin of it. No, nothing that was not used somehow, it all had to be burned outside of the camp. The reason for this is that it signals, it signifies, it's a picture of the removal of pollution from the camp. Outside the camp was where unclean things had to go. Now, not everything outside the camp was unclean. In fact, it says it's to be burned outside the camp in a clean place, right? Nevertheless, that's typically where unclean things had to go. They had to be removed lest they defile the camp of the Lord. This is why if you were a leper, you had to live outside the camp. You would defile it. Leviticus 13, 46, he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
This is why you didn't use the restroom inside the camp in Israel. That would defile it. Deuteronomy 23, 12 through 14. You shall have a place outside the camp. You shall go out to it, and you shall have a trowel with your tools. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore, your camp must be holy so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. This is also the significance of the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. It is said to bear the sins, bear the uncleanness of the people out of the camp. Leviticus 16.22, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. It takes away the pollution. It also signals that the pollution of the worshiper has been taken away out of the camp now. From all these things, brothers and sisters, we see that sin is uncleanness. It's pollution. It's compared to excrement. It's compared to bodily discharges and skin diseases. The sin offering is to cleanse from this defilement. Well, brothers and sisters, Christ is our sin offering who has cleansed us. First, he went into the heavens. He went into the temple and cleansed it with his blood. You know, on the Day of Atonement, The priest went into the holiest place and offered the blood. As we've seen with the greater pollution, the farther you go into God's presence to make atonement. You could almost imagine it like the floodwaters of sin. The greater the sin, the higher they rise. The more it needs to be washed away. On the day of atonement, they went as far as they could go on the earth, and yet it could not remove sins. Why? Because it never went to heaven. It never went truly before the Lord Christ did. Hebrews 9, 22 through 24. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, are not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ can truly purge away our uncleanness. Why? Because he's gone to the highest level. He can give the greatest greatest cleansing from sin. Furthermore, Christ's blood is powerful enough to cleanse and purify and wash away sins. Brothers and sisters, you cannot wash away your sin on your own. The Old Testament prophets talk about this. If you were to use lye, if you were to use soap, all you could, if you could scrub as hard as you could, you could spend your whole life trying to do it, you would find you've made yourself dirtier. The blood of those sacrifices could only cleanse in an outward ceremonial way. Christ's blood kills sin. It washes it away. It cleanses its pollution, just as you might say, bleach kills bacteria. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14, 
of the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. You know, Christians, as I said, the remains of sin, it stinks. I don't even say that to be funny. The word stink is kind of like a funny word. It smells. It's rancid. The remains of sin, even within us. And yet in Christ, we also must affirm we've been washed. We've been cleansed. The sin uh, that stinks has been taken away from us in the sense that God's wrath shall not come upon us. So many times in the New Testament, Christians are said to be washed. Christians are said to be made clean and pure. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the great truth that Paul affirmed in Philippians 3. For all of his great achievements, Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, blameless as to zeal, a Pharisee, for all that, it couldn't cleanse him from his sin couldn't give him the righteousness before God, only that was to be received by faith. Indeed, baptism is a picture of this washing away of sin, the cleansing of impurity, both outwardly in the sense of our justification and inwardly, the sense of our regeneration and sanctification. This is why Ananias not the one who was put to death, the one who helps Paul. He tells Paul in Acts twenty two sixteen. and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Baptism is a picture of the washing away of sin by the, by the giving of the Spirit and justification in Christ. Washing is also related to regeneration as well. The washing Christ gives is not just external. It's not just legal and forensic. It's inherent. It's inside of us. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. We've read in John Davenant how, how the Romanists and uh, Robert Bellamine, they accused the Protestants of saying, They only teach that sin is covered, right? It's like God puts a newspaper over the mess of our sin. We say, no, truly our sin is covered by the blood of Christ and justification, but we are also inwardly purified and cleansed. Sin remains, but it's mortified. It no longer longer reigns within us. Our hearts have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they now beat with life. They're no longer dead in sin. Furthermore, Christ, by his word and spirit, is continually washing his bride. This very moment, 
Christ is washing your souls with his word, brothers and sisters. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christian, one day, I'll tell you, tell you two things. One of the signs that you are pressing on into sanctification is that your sin stinks to you. The second sign, you long for the day when it will be fully purged away from your soul. Oh, I forget the title of the hymn. It's, it's such a beautiful way of describing this. It says, then holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. It's like after all the travails, all the, all the battles with the flesh, all the times of falling, all the times of, of defiling the conscience again, finally all the sin is taken away and the soul says, Amen. Peace. My warfare is ended. John tells us about the new Jerusalem, the new temple, Revelation 21.7, but nothing unclean will enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the book of, of the, the Lamb's book of life. Nothing is unclean that's in there, brothers and sisters, but you'll be there, which means you will have been fully cleansed. Remember we talked about that concupiscence, those desires of the heart? We don't plan, but they are truly sin. You won't experience that anymore. What's that like? I have no clue. I've never experienced that in my life. None of us have. We will know it in that day. No sin. Fully washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, not only have you been clean, we could say you've been perfumed with the righteousness of Christ. It's interesting that with the sin offering, um, when, it's, when it's flour that is given, there's to be no oil and no, um, no frankincense of any kind. And it says, for it is a sin offering, right? And part of that is to show us the, that this is not a kind of like a pleasing thing in a certain sense. It's, it's for sin, right? We can also say, though, that having been washed away from our, our sin and our impurity, we're also perfumed with the aroma of Christ and his righteousness. Benjamin Keach comments on Song of Solomon 3.6 which says of the bridegroom, who is this that cometh out of the wilderness like pillars of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all the powders of the merchant? Keats says, Christ, Christ hath a perfuming virtue or power. We read of the sweet scent of the church, but how comes she to smell so sweet? But from the communication of sweet graces of Christ to her, Sinners are very unsavory until this myrrh has dropped upon them. Christ is the richest, the purest perfume in heaven and earth, none so sweet. How fragrant is he in the nostrils of God the Father. And you have that aroma of Christ on you, Christian. Lastly, Christ is our sin offering in that he has borne away our uncleanness upon himself 
in that he suffered outside the camp, outside of the walls of Jerusalem. The author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 13, 11 through 12, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Because Christ was cut off Christian, your uncleanness, your vileness, the stench of your sin was placed on the clean one and he was put outside so that you may remain inside, so that you may not be one who is cut off. You know, hell is described as being outside. It's out of the camp of God's kingdom. It's outer darkness. Christ went outside so you could remain in. He bore away your transgressions. He took away your sin from you. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. I pray, one of my prayers for you today, brothers and sisters, is that whether you like it or not, your sin would stink in your nostrils, that you might put it off and put on Christ. Oh, that's a dangerous place to be when your sin no longer stinks to you. That's when bad things happen. If you would grow in Christ... Say, God, let me smell the stench of it that I may apply more of Christ and his blood. For you children, for anyone who's not yet accepted Christ, as you sit now, you are unclean before God in your sin. Nothing you do can wash away your uncleanness. Nothing you do if you were to cry out and say, God, I'm so sorry, with tears before God, it would not clean you. If you were to try to obey so perfectly, if you were to wake up early in the morning and pray, God, please help me obey you. Please help me to not sin against you. If you were to be so good that all the parents and the rest of the church say about you, well, they're a good boy and girl. I even hope my children are like them one day. If you have not come to Christ, you stink before God and you shall not come into his kingdom. You shall be placed outside in outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. There is hope for you. A sin offering was provided by Jesus Christ to cleanse sinners from their filthiness. And Jesus offers that to you today. He says, come to me. I will wash away all your sins, which you can't wash away. I'll let you come into the kingdom because I've gone out of the kingdom. Uh, I've, gone, uh, to outer, <laughs> I've gone outside the camp in my suffering to purify sinners. Come to me. You know, it's remarkable, boys and girls, if you had lived back in the time of Jesus Christ, people who were lepers... They had the disease of leprosy. Kind of turns your skin really white and makes it go numb. And then it can kind of rot your skin and your fingers can fall off. If you, can, you can give it to someone else by touching them. That was a kind of uncleanness. And so lepers had to live outside the camp. 
And when they walked down the street, as they passed by other people, they had to say, unclean, unclean, so that those people didn't come near them and touch them and get unclean. You know what kind of people Jesus heals all the time? He heals lepers of uncleanness. We're told of a story in Matthew, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, Lord, if you will, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, I will, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Boys and girls, if you come to Jesus, and if you say to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he will say to you, I am willing, be clean. No one who, come to, who came to Jesus ever heard this. I don't know if you're elect, though. I'm sorry. Maybe come back once you find out if you're elect or not. He doesn't tell them that. He says, I am willing, be clean. He doesn't say, I don't know if I can forgive those sins. Those are some really bad sins. He's powerful enough. I am willing. Be clean. Everyone who comes to Jesus will receive cleansing from his blood freely, and you can have that today. And then guess what? You get to receive baptism, which is a picture of the cleansing. Just as when you take a bath, you're clean. That's what baptism is. This person has been cleansed by Jesus Christ freely by his mercy. All you have to do is come to him, and he'll do it. Don't try to clean yourself. You'll just make it worse. You'll offend God even more because you'll stink even more. Just come to Jesus, and he'll cleanse you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. You've washed away our uncleanness. We thank you, Lord, that you've even washed our conscience so that our conscience is no longer said to be defiled. But now we have joy. I pray, Father God, that you would help us to have a greater sight of that cleansing that you've given us in Christ. That we'd have a greater joy, a greater confidence because of that before you. You have fully taken away our sins. And yet also, Lord, that we would have a greater hatred for sin. That it would, it would stink in our nostrils even more because of the beauty of the cleansing you've given us. Would you help us to press on, Lord? Pray for those who don't know you. Father, would you help them to never be comfortable in the stench of their sin until they come to Christ? Would they never be able to shake off the smell by good works, by numbing of their conscience, by trying to put you out of their heart and mind and say you don't exist? May you always be there and may their sin always be before them. As David said, my sin is always before you so that they would come to Christ to be cleansed. Would you cleanse them, Lord? We ask all this in the name of Christ.